Well, this morning we are in the book of Deuteronomy. We're looking at our series on the Ten Commandments called Words to Live By. Uh, last week we covered the very first commandment out of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And uh, if you remember, that first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's go ahead and say that together. You shall have no other gods before me. That's right. And I kind of mentioned that if you were over a certain age, you might have been very accustomed to repeating these Ten Commandments as they were sometimes uh, practiced in schoolrooms, but definitely appeared on many government buildings and schools and so forth. Um, historically, the United States has put the Ten Commandments into places of prominence uh, as the center of our law code and ethics. If you visit Washington, D.C., uh, you can see pictures, uh, depictions of Moses holding the tablets with the Ten Commandments etched upon them in the Capitol building, for instance, uh, in a statue near the Supreme Court building, and so forth. Um, so the United States has always paid tribute to the Ten Commandments. It is the basis of moral law, not just for our country, but for most of the Western world. However, there are other options, right? Uh, in this post-Christian society that we live in, uh, people really didn't want to associate morality with God. And so uh, just not too long ago, John, uh, excuse me, Lex Bayer, the vice president of Airbnb, and uh, John Figgor, a humanist chaplain at Stanford University, uh, held a contest to see if anyone else could come up with a list of commandments that were disassociated from God and religion. And just to sweeten the pot, they threw in $10,000 for the winning entry. Um, they got a, quite a few submissions. But I'm going to read for you this morning uh, the one entry that won. They call it the Ten Non-Commandments, right? Uh, let me just read them for you. The first one is, Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Secondly, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. And if you can't quite see it, there's a couple of jabs, I think, at uh, Christianity there. The scientific method number three is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Fourthly, every person has the right, right of control of their own body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Uh, six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. We'd probably agree with that, right? Seven, treat others as you'd want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. There is nine, no one right way to live, and 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, as we read through those, you know, the one that kind of catches you a little bit, I hope, as you're listening to this is number nine. There is no one right way to live, and yet uh, we're already told that the scientific method is the best way, and that all 10 of these commandments actually are pushing you in a direction of one way to live. 
Now, we can't get on that case too much because that's exactly what God's Ten Commandments do as well. Without apology, uh, the Ten Commandments are there as the basis of the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's why we believe what we believe. Um, number seven for them, treat others as you'd want them to be treated, sounds really good. Matter of fact, it sounds very familiar because, in fact, it's almost a verbatim quote of Jesus Christ's words in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. You know, if you have a chance to look that up. So there's a lot of things that we can't get away from. I think, if anything else, for me, those 10 non-commandments kind of show us that the way that people want to be treated really has its basis and its roots in the Ten Commandments that we're studying in this series. Uh, our world is striving to find a way to live a life of morality without honoring the creator of such morality. I got into a deep discussion with a young student from Germany uh, in the, um, their sort of a shopping area of the city of Denver, Colorado. A lot of old shops and uh, kind of a hangout area, but he was sitting on a bench and he was weeping, just crying his eyes out. And I asked him what had happened and he described for me how his girlfriend of, I think, three or four years had dropped him and gone off with another guy. And so I took this as an opportunity to just to express my concern, my love for him. I wanted to pray with him. And he, as soon as he heard those kind of words, he wanted nothing to do with me. You know, he said, I, I don't need your God. And I said, well, uh, you may not need him, but he wants you. You know, we had this long talk. But he instantly went into this, well, we don't need God in order to live our lives rightly. Uh, that is a construct of Christians that happened so they could take power and so forth. And after about an hour of going back and forth on this, uh, I couldn't convince him. Eventually he got up and he said something like, well, I'll just live my life and we'll just see how God helps you live your life. Uh, he walked off. And unfortunately, that is just where a lot of people are at. They don't see a need for there to be a God behind any kind of moral value, behind any kind of laws for sure, at least not ones that govern everyone in a society. Well, back to God's commandments as we find ourselves this morning. We're at commandment number two, which is in essence saying that you cannot reduce God to an idol. In fact, commandments two and three require us to really think through our perception of who God is. The truth is, is that our obedience to these first three commandments, right, will show each of us how we value God's nature and name, and it shapes how we approach God and live in his world. So let's read these, starting verse 7 of chapter 5. Um, excuse me, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, strong words. You know, that whole paragraph is basically saying, do not reduce God 
to any kind of image. In fact, there are three imperative commands uh, in this section, in this commandment, and they basically are, you shall not make, you shall not bow down, and you shall not worship. You can't do that. Uh, these are it's strong words. They're emphatic words. Uh, they're exhaustive in scope. Most scholars believe that these uh, imperatives are really idiomatic. They're, they're just saying like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. We're not really going to sit down and eat a horse, are we, to satiate our hunger. However, uh, God is saying through Moses, in no way, under no circumstances, to the uttermost part of your being, do I want you in some way to try to encapsulate me in an image, in a form, to think about me other than the way that I present myself. You shall not do it. There will be strong consequences. And the why should we obey this question is answered right here. Because your God is a jealous God, it says. I prefer the word translated there as jealous to be more of a passionate idea, right? Uh, that title of God is El Elkanah. I am a passionate God. I care deeply about this. I, I don't know when's the last time you ran across anybody who believed passionately in something, uh, but it is, it's something to behold for someone who can really express how they feel. And God is trying to say, this is not open to debate. This is not something that you may question. I am passionate. I am Elkanah. And then he goes on with that with some very strong commands, right? He says, first of all, for those who don't love me, those who hate me, he says, I will punish them to the third or fourth uh, generation. This is saying that you are not demonstrating and keeping covenant faithfulness. Um, I looked at this, and I used to read this, and I thought, well, the third or fourth generation, that's a long time. Uh, my great-grandfather, you mean, would have sinned, would have not been faithful to God, and I have to suffer the consequences? This is a common theme, right, in our society today. Uh, I am guilty for what my ancestors have done. But when you really look at this, you gain an understanding that the third and fourth generation isn't necessarily a vertical third and fourth generation, but it's more of a horizontal third and fourth generation. It wasn't uncommon in Israel for there to be two, three, and even four generations of people living in one under the guidance and leadership of one patriarch. Think about that. Uh, I, I know in my uh, family, I had a great-grandfather in northern Iowa that uh, he had earned enough money in farming and so forth. He came to his family and said, should we buy more land or should we build a huge house? where we can all live. And my grandmother, who was one of his children, and her brothers answered, we'd rather you build a big house. They wanted to live in the same area, if not under the same roof. So he did. He built a great house. And I can remember going past it as a child. By then, it was already beginning to fall in, and the roof was collapsing, and so forth. But it demonstrated to me that my great-grandparents lived there, uh, my grandmother's generation lived there, and several of those in that generation had married, and their kids lived there with them. And the idea is, even if you don't live under the same roof, if you give back obedience and understanding that one person 
is the head of your family, the patriarch of your family, that's the third and fourth generation. How that one person interacts with God, how he understands God, how he either chooses to obey or disobey God will have a direct impact and effect upon the well-being, the finances, the health, and so forth of everyone that is underneath him. What a responsibility, right? What's not, that's something for us to really, really think about. But then he kind of counters that a little bit, yeah, or I should say a lot of bit, and he says, but if you love me, if you desire to obey me and show steadfast love, uh, God will bless you to what? Uh, if you look down there at verse 10, to those who love me and keep my commands will be love to the thousands. Now, he doesn't complete that phrase, right? Love to the thousandth generation. I think you have to take that for what it's saying. It has to be something that spreads out. So God's wrath is relatively short-lived if it's just three to four generations. But thousands? Wow! The love of God for those who in that position honor God, tithe to God, obey God, uh, in their family are consistently walking with God, he will bless their children's and children's children. Now, as a young man, I would read that and I would think, ooh, that's something that's really you know, important and I should pay attention to that. However, it didn't have nearly the impact on me as it does today. Now that I have kids and grandkids, uh, I want to be able to pray and ask God to bless them, to protect them, to provide for them, um, to show them the way. And if I'm a faithful man, this seems to be saying, then God will do just exactly that to the thousands of generations, to generations, people that I can't even possibly imagine. Now, you might want to argue and say, well, Dave, this is about covenant relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel. Does it really apply to us? And I would argue that it does, because we see that Christ himself was quoting from a large part of the book of Deuteronomy. To say that only parts of it apply to us and others don't, I think is, a, is an error of hermeneutics. I think there's the promises of God. It's in principle that God is saying, if you honor me, if you're a father, if you're a mom who's running a household, and you honor the Lord, God is going to honor the generations that are under your care, and way beyond that. The world that the Israelites were about to launch into was full of people groups that saw God in all things. Uh, there were sun gods, there were moon gods, storm gods, wind gods, Gods made from wood, stone, uh, depicted in drawings. Uh, the Canaanite culture was replete with this. And it wasn't just the Canaanites. We know from ancient Greek civilization, uh, when Paul goes to Mars Hill, there are hundreds of gods. There's a god for everything. Why do you have an upset stomach? Well, the god of, you know, gastroenterology must be, you know, not happy with me right now. You know, why do you have a headache? Uh, you know, there was always a reason that you could do this. Why does the sun come up in the morning? Well, there's a God in charge of that. All ancient people saw their gods as existing, and this is the important, the important point, within creation. Uh, the gods were, if not subject to that creation, they at least were in some way functional to that creation. 
And yet God is coming here and he's saying, I'm different. I can't be part of creation. I'm not in creation. I'm above it. I am the creator of all things. Um, this is an important point. All along, all along comes the Israelites who are going to go into Canaanite as ambassadors of Jehovah God, and they're going to have to tell the people that are there, if they bother to explain this at all, but they have to tell them, our God is the God. He's not one of many gods. He's not Isis. He's not Marduk. He's not Ra. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. And remember, the name of God, it's just a simple phrase, right? The I am. Uh, when Moses is standing at the burning bush and God is giving him his directions, what he should do, and Moses is like, well, that's, that's great, God, but who should I tell Pharaoh has come to call? And God says, what? I am that I am. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm just thinking, What? How am I going to say this to the Israelites? How am I going to say this to Pharaoh? How are they going to grasp this? You know, remember the Egyptian gods, all their gods had animal parts, a bird's head, right? Uh, Horus the owl and so forth. Uh, they would say, no, that's not who their god is. They didn't believe that he was an animal, but they believed that the animal represented the best of that god. I'm sure Moses was thinking there's got to be something, some depiction of God that I can take with me when I go to Pharaoh and say, my God is greater than your God. And yet God refused to be cornered into Moses' limited way of thinking. I am that I am. And you're just going to have to get by with that. That's what he was meaning. The Apostle Paul touches on that in the New Testament, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 1, when he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, um, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Now, he just says, he uses a visual verb there. God has shown it to them. Shown what to whom? Paul is arguing that the unbelieving Gentile world should have known that there was a God because God has shown himself. But then in the next sentence, he says, for his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How do you perceive, especially clearly, that which is invisible? Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Even though you can't see God, even though that you, you don't have really a way of, in your mind, coming up with a picture of God, you're still responsible to this God. God believes that through the things that he has made, nature, uh, the world you live in, and so forth, when you first see that little baby, today's Father's Day, and if you're a dad, you remember that moment when that little baby is handed over to you. Uh, it's such a glorious time. And in that time, it's probably pretty easy to imagine that you have a loving and wonderful God. He's blessed you. And so Paul says, they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for images 
Now we're going to go back to where humans are most comfortable. Images resulting, uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What's the lie? Well, obviously the lie is reducing God to an image. It's an idol. It violates this very commandment that God gave to Moses so many years before. God refuses to allow there to be any images of himself. And because they exchanged this truth for a God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. And he goes through a long list of things that the judgment entails for people who refuse to worship God in his purest form, which is, I am. Yahweh just basically is, says, I exist. It's frustrating in some ways, isn't it? How much easier would it be to invite people to church if you could point to something that shows the visibility of God, that shows him in some way as a wonderful being, uh, a powerful being, a majestic being. But we can't do that because God cannot be within the nature and the creation that he created. He's above such things, and he refuses to be defined by those things, right? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Even if you had the most sincere of hearts and you said, well, I'm going to make a, a, an image of what God means to me. And you didn't bow down to that image, but in your mind you've thought, well, this, this thing represents God to me. And therefore, I'm not worshiping this image. I'm worshiping God through that image. But isn't that what the children of Israel were doing when they sinned? Didn't Aaron, the great high priest, and the children of Israel, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, didn't they craft a golden calf? I'm sure it was beautiful. I'm sure it was something that they could touch and put their hands on and say, this, this is it. This is God. And God says, no. In fact, his anger was so burning, so hot, that it was only because of the intercession of Moses that God didn't destroy his people right then and there. We, as believers in Christ, we have a, a great gift. We can look at Jesus, the man, and say, well, this is God. So show me a picture of Jesus this morning. Do you have a statue of Jesus at your house? Do you have something that limits them? You see, that's the criticism of people who follow Islam and some in Judaism, is that we've really substituted this command now for the image of Jesus Christ, who was just a man. God can't be encapsulated in, as a man. But that's the point of the New Testament, isn't it? That's the whole thing. God, in his love for us, in order to provide salvation for us, it wasn't so much that God is now a man, but that God loved us enough to empty himself of his glory so that he could do for us what needed to be done. It was our sin that pushed that whole thing from to happening. 
Jesus Christ is not an idol. He's not a substitute. He is, in fact, God himself. We do the same thing, though. I mean, you think, well, let's fast forward uh, to our day and age. None of us have images of God, probably. I doubt if many of us in here are idol worshipers, but yet we fall into idolatry, don't we? We still do. It's easy to do. We start thinking about God in ways that are not necessarily scriptural, but we as Christians have come, become so used to it that we can't help ourselves. So what, how do you think about God? When you just think there's a God, uh, what do you think about when you think there is a God? Some of us think of a God as a totally loving, fatherly figure that is beaming down at me. He's a, just a nice old man standing up there. He doesn't interfere in life too much. Uh, he got the world moving, and then he stepped aside, and now natural law takes his way. And, you know, he's just somebody I can go to once in a while, and he gives me warm fuzzies, right? That's an idol. Uh, God is constantly critical of me, some of us think. He do, he's not nice. He can't love me. Have you seen the evil in this world? He allows that to go on when he's all-powerful, supposedly. He can't be the kind of God that I want to be in relationship with. Does that conform to Scripture and how he's described? That's an idol. Well, God has put me in a place in my own personal life with my family with the people that I work with or whatever, and there's no joy or happiness. He made me fat. He made me small. He made me tall. Uh, I'm not athletic. I'm not that bright. This God, I don't know if I want to be with him. He could have done so many nice things through me. I get so depressed, and I think about God. That's an idol. Everything that we think about God, we have to submit to the words of Scripture because it's the tendency of all of us, no matter how devout and sincere we are in our Christian walk, we will begin to drift in our imagination and in our thoughts as to who is this God that we worship. When I teach systematic or historical theology on occasion, uh, we spend a whole lesson just on what we call folk theology. Folk theology is like folk tales, right? Uh, there's an element of truth that then is expanded so that people begin to believe things that really are extra scriptural and certainly not true to the image of God that we have in scripture. Um, you know, doctrinal points like dead people become angels, complete with wings and a heart floating on a cloud. Uh, nowhere in scripture is that said, but yet try to argue some people out of that opinion. You can't do it. Uh, we just go to things that are comfortable that are culturally acceptable of our image of God. And we have to rid ourselves of that. And the only way to do that is by reading the Word of God, by reading the Scriptures. We have to immerse ourselves in the Word. Uh, I just always encourage people, start in Genesis, read to the end of the book. Do this often as you can uh, throughout your life as a Christian. As you do so, you will find things and you'll say, wow, I have never seen that before. I didn't understand that about God. Or I've held to some belief about my Christianity, about who God is and my relationship with him that just doesn't match up here. How am I supposed to understand this? See, idolatry sneaks into our hearts. 
and we begin to act on it and to believe in it and it doesn't do us any good we have to free ourselves from idolatry and there's a couple of reasons why this is true first of all when we practice idolatry even the non-physical representation type of idolatry that many of us uh, have participated in uh, it diminishes our view of humanity doesn't it because according to genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 we have been created in the image of whom god that's right now it doesn't mean that god has a head and two arms and two legs it doesn't mean that god looks you know like a hansen or a misnick or whatever it just means that he was created we were created to be like him we have emotion we have will we can understand right from wrong and so forth we are created like god now if i'm going to practice idolatry and i can reduce god from his divineness to something that my humanity can interact with something that's more lateral instead of vertical then where does that leave his creation where does that leave you and i as his created image well it's much lower isn't it because originally if i have to worship this god and i can't see him he's invisible as it says in romans chapter one that we should appreciate his invisible attributes his eternal power his divine nature but yet then i can put that in a form then the man woman that are created by this god have to be even lower yet well when that happens it's tough because now all things are possible it's it's like we're the same level as dogs other animals and in some cases even much lower you know we've all met those people that elevate their pet to being almost as important as themselves and everything else and everyone else is lower than it also opens us up to injustice right in ezekiel chapter 18 let's see if i can get to that um, idolatry is linked with injustice i'll just read these verses for you starting verse 11 verse 11 through 13 uh, for those who eat upon the mountains that's a definite act of idolatry ezekiel the prophet is saying for those who go to the mountains and they eat food offered to idols uh, they practice idolatry what happens the result of that is he defiles his neighbor's wife he oppresses the poor and needy he commits robbery he does not restore the pledge he lifts up his eyes to the idols commits abomination lends at interest takes profit shall he then live he shall not live says the lord he has done all these abominations he shall surely die his blood shall be upon himself when we practice idolatry when we don't have a proper image of who god is there's no way that we can have a proper image of the people in our neighborhood the people that we go to church with the people that we work with we will practice injustice we have to hold God up for who he is. Another thing that idolatry will do to us is it helps us to become greedy. It allows greed to become our God. We see this in Christ's own words in Matthew chapter 6, right? 
man cannot serve two gods. He can't serve money, and he can't serve God together. One will take precedent. One will be the Lord. And all too often in our materialistic society, we worship the riches, the money. Uh, sorry, Rich Hatch, I didn't mean those riches. <laughs> right. So we worship that, which is, you know, as it says in uh, King James, mammon. It's a, it's a contest of our heart. There, and it's not just money. There's a whole bunch of things that will flood into our life once we remove God from where he is to where we feel like we can handle him, to where we can grasp what he is saying. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he lists things that people who have gotten their eyes off of God practice. And one of the last ones, he says, and they are greedy. And then he says, and this is idolatry. So he's echoing what Christ has already said. And this is idolatry. How do we keep ourselves pure? How do we keep God where he is? We don't want to be guilty. I assume you don't want to be guilty of violating this second commandment, which we can summarize as as often done as, you shall make no graven image. Well, graven is in the sense of etching upon your mind a false impression of God. Those of us who have been through uh, child abuse will often see our earthly father and it gets in the way of the picture we should have of our heavenly father. All of those things have to be pushed aside. They have to be submitted to the blood of Christ. We have to cleanse our soul so that God can have preeminence in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We want him to be honored in everything that we do. Strong commandment. And I I don't know any other way to make sure that we're on the right track in our image of God, in our minds and hearts, than just by reading his word. I had a teacher... Um, that wasn't my teacher, but he was a teacher in the town that I was ministering in. And he was a uh, supposedly practicing Catholic, but in fact, he was in every other way an atheist. And he called me to the classroom, believe it or not, because we were having a dispute on something in our town. And he wanted to talk about God. He just said, let's talk about God, Dave. And so we started going back and forth, what I believe, what he believes, And pretty soon I realized that the elements of his belief of God really were coming from his own heart. He wasn't arguing scripture with me. He was saying, well, I've always thought, oh, I think the way that I see this is that God, and eventually I just said, hey, Lee, I really don't care what you think about God. And you shouldn't care what I think about God. What we should both care about, as far as we know, there's only one source of revelation that describes God, that tells us what we think about God. Now, if you want to say to me, I don't agree with your interpretation of this verse or so forth, then then we got something to talk about. But this has been around for a long time. And as far as I know, there is no other source that we can take as authoritative as to who God is, right? So if you don't know your word, you really don't know, have much to talk about. Uh, whatever's in your heart and mind about God may be as false as the Israelis 
idols in their home that God says get rid of. Clear them out, right? Don't go to the high places, he says to the Israelites when they come into the new land. Get rid of those high places. Get rid of those idols. Get rid of all those things. It's a cleansing process. And the only cleansing that we can survive and be absolutely assured is the right process is when we know the word. How do we know it? We have to study it. How do we study it? Take a class. We offer Bible study method classes all the time. Take a class. It's the best thing that we can do. As we close this morning, I want to just return to that one section of this passage that really made an impact on me this week, which is to the third and fourth generation. It speaks to me as a father, as a grandfather, of the importance that I, as a dad, must have in living my life faithfully for the Lord. I want to challenge every father that's here this morning. I know this is Father's Day, and you know, pastors are renowned for getting on the case of dads, whereas we honor mothers on Mother's Day. Fathers, you usually get taken to the woodshed. Um, <laughs> but I just want to just say, maybe you're doing it right. Maybe you're doing it great. I know a lot of you in here personally, and you're doing everything you can to be that man that sees God's blessing going out to the thousands of generations. But maybe you're not. Maybe there's some things that you've taken for granted. I just want to say as dads, we have to be committed to leading our family spiritually. There's no one else who will take that role but us. I recently had to deal with a family member who experienced great loss in his life. And his confession is that he is not, he did not take the opportunity to disciple his sons. He had taken no interest spiritually in his grandson. Oh, did everything. Baseball games, soccer games, uh, made sure that they got great grades, uh, just went to bat for his kids like few others. Great dad in that regard. But he was missing entirely this idea of spiritual headship. That's the promise. If we're in covenant faithfulness with God as dads, then to the thousands of generations, God will bless. That's a promise from the Lord. That's a promise. We have to be the spiritual leader of our family. As you profess on Sunday, so shall we live Monday through Saturday, right? Be the warrior for your family. As the kids are walking in this morning, I can't think of a better illustration, right? These are the ones that we're going to bat for. These are the ones that we care for. We all make mistakes. This is not about being perfect. There are so many things I have to apologize to my kids for and have apologized to my kids for. But my kids know that in sincerity, my heart is to walk after God. And a huge motivation of my walk with God is so that I can look them in the eye and say, now pass this on to the next generation, to the next generation. I've set an example the best I can for you. May that be your desire this morning. I pray that that will be. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love and your grace and your mercy. You are so faithful to us. 
I pray, Lord, for every person here that heads a family. There are dads. There might be single moms here. Um, whatever the case is, Lord, if we lead a family, help us to be faithful people. May we not allow there to be false images of you in our heart. May we examine your word. May we be students of your word so that our faith and our belief is righteous, is good. You are the invisible God, and we worship you as such. In Jesus' name, amen.